According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 9 as we get started. Luke 9, 51 through 56. 51 through 56. The passage we got started on last week, and we ought to be able to tie things together for this week. This is a pretty famous episode, maybe not as well known in other circles, but I've always liked it for years and years. And so I've used it, I'm sure, for various illustrations here and there. This is where James and John, where elsewhere they are referred to as the sons of thunder. Uh, Here, James and John uh, get upset with the Samaritans and they want to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them. And so... Generally speaking, of course, uh, <clears throat> this is not the solution to your problems, it is not to simply obliterate uh, your enemies or to, uh, you know, destroy those that uh, that cause you a hard time. We're, in fact, we're commanded to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And yet, uh, this is quite interesting because as as we are approaching the cross, we're now six months out from the cross, Uh, the Lord is furiously and desperately trying to teach these disciples and prepare them for his departure. And and, uh, these are the men that are going to be apostles in the the soon-to-come church age. And he he would like to think that he's further along, or they're further along than this, that, that they're going to be able to step into the beginning of the church and take things over. Well, if they're of the temperament that they just want to blast everybody, uh, when they get a little bit insulted, then they are not as prepared for the church age as uh, as maybe they need to be. So it's a good opportunity for the Lord to evaluate where uh, he needs to take them in uh, the training ministry as far as the time that he has remaining. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for the truth of your word and for the privilege that it is for us to assemble together. We've had an early morning prayer meeting already. The ladies had a prayer meeting. We have a teaching session now. And and then, Father, this evening uh, we're anticipating the conclusion to the Arnold Fruchtenbaum Conference. Father, your blessings keep being poured out uh, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Father, we just rejoice to be a part of your plan and to be the recipients of your revealed truth. Father, set aside distractions, open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have point episode 55 in the uh, Galilean ministry called Galilee Departure and Samaritan Rejection. And under this, we focus the context, we set the context for this episode, whereas the brothers <coughs> were all oriented towards the Lord going up there and making a big splash. <clears throat> they were oriented towards the Feast of Tabernacles for the features contained in Zechariah 14, uh, the subservience of the Gentile kings, having the Gentile kings come and bow and worship, having uh, the throne of David exalted and everything else. Remember, <clears throat> I think we sometimes lose track of this, James and, and Jude and, and Joseph and Simon, every last one of those men were in the line of Christ. That is, they were in the Davidic line. They were sons of Abraham, sons of Isaac, sons of Jacob, sons of Judah, sons of David, royal heirs themselves. See, other than, of course, for the fact that their older brother, Jesus Christ, was the heir. But now, if you're an unbeliever and have the the world's way of thinking, well, you're next in line. Because Jesus hadn't gotten married. Jesus hadn't had any children. And so James is the next in line. He is what we would call the crown prince, if we were to give it an English uh, you know, terminology from the English peerage. Uh, you know, until Jesus produces an heir, that line of David, the legal line through Solomon, the, uh, the Davidic throne is his, and should, it not be, should he not claim it, it belongs to James. It belongs to the younger brothers. It belongs, that line continues, see. So we, we can recognize pretty easily what their motivation is going to be for 
urging him to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, on the other hand, was fixed on his return to God the Father. And as we read it here, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Some of the things that we're going to study coming up in the ministry workshop, coming up in some uh, Timothy classes and some other 1 Corinthians classes, is what brings us to that point of determination? At what point do we get locked in on the will of God for our lives? What it is He would have us to do, see? And we should have, <clears throat> we go through the stages there where we have a consideration, we have a conviction, but once you're under conviction, that needs to become a determination. When you know that God has called you to be a pastor, for example, I had a suspicion in 1990, but over the course of six months in, in Saudi Arabia and writing letters back and forth, two things took place. Because I had letters back and forth to Sharon, and uh, I was convinced beyond any doubt that this was the woman I was going to marry and spend the rest of my life with. But then the second series of letters was back and forth with my pastor to find out. How do I know what my gift is? How do I know what the Lord is going to do with me? And I was able to come back from the deserts of Arabia with two convictions. Those convictions which then became determinations. And we need to be at that point where we have, where a, a consideration has become a conviction which then becomes a determination. And so Jesus was determined. And we'll have some things to say about that. In fact, I would like to do a... Uh, Study just a word study with you as we have time this morning on that determination. And so if I forget between now and the end of the hour, remind me um, that we would like to look at that from the Greek text. All right. So they had their focus. He had his. And, and that should not be a surprise. If you have unbelievers in your family, then you've encountered this, that they have their focus and you have yours. And they don't understand why the, you have the priorities you have. Why don't you come to the family reunions on a Sunday afternoon, for example. And, and why can't you just skip church to come do this family thing, for example? You say, well, you know, I have other priorities. I'll, I'll be there after church. I'll be there when I, as soon as I can get there. But I'm going to get there late, and I'm not going to be there for the entirety of what you have going on. Under this, we have some sub-points, the days of his ascension. Uh, they were approaching, that is, that they were reaching their fulfillment they were arriving at their fulfillment. It's not just simply a day on a calendar that's approaching, but a fulfillment to the plan of God. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. He sent angeloi ahead of him. And we have to make the determination when we come encounter the term angeloi. Uh, one of the messages that was delivered at the pre-trib conference uh, last December, I didn't attend, but uh, my friend Pastor uh, Robbie Dean was up there, one of the speakers, and he spoke about the angeloi of Revelation 2 and 3. And what are the angeloi of Revelation 2 and 3? The angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Smyrna, and so forth. The seven angels of the seven churches. And uh, some folks believe that those were actual spirit being, you know, heavenly messenger types. Uh, our view, my understanding, is that they are the pastor teachers, that they are the supreme uh, elder overseer of each local assembly is considered by Jesus Christ to be the angelos of that assembly. And so I'd be very interested to hear the uh, material that Pastor Dean presented to that uh, body of scholars. Arnold Fruchtenbaum was another one of the speakers up there as well, by the way. So to miss my first one in seven years, I missed a good one. I tell you, that's, uh, I don't want to miss another one coming up. We looked at some of the isagogics, some of the history involved, some of the uh, disagreements between the Samaritans and the Jews. They actually had a history of problems with each other, going all the way back to the book of Nehemiah. So if you read in the book of Nehemiah and you read about uh, different antagonists, uh, opponents of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, uh, the governor and different Samaritan uh, hostilities that were there, you'll you read about Sanballat and you'll read about uh, Tobiah and you read some of these other characters that are introduced in the book of Nehemiah and understand that animosity actually continues from the close of the Old Testament through the intertestamental period, on into the Gospels, and beyond the Gospels, into the book of Acts. And it really continued on until even beyond the point where the Romans brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. All right. Uh, and by the way, the Romans also brought about some good Samaritan destructions as well. They, it's not as if the Samaritans were the, the teacher's pets of the, of the territory there. All right.
James and John under point four. James and John evidently learned nothing from the humility lessons of Matthew 18. What makes this episode so startling is not only does it come three years after beginning their travels with Jesus, but it comes immediately on the heels of all the humility teaching he had been providing them in, in Matthew 18. That he had really brought the Galilean ministry to a close with a series of messages on humility. It would be as if we um, had a series here at Austin Bible Church and we focused on our remaining months on Woodrow Avenue. And we taught a series to close the ministry on Woodrow Avenue. And that series was focused on, uh, say it was focused on unity. All right. We have a series of teaching for six months on unity. And it marks the closing of the Woodrow Avenue ministry. And then we move to the new location. And in between here and there, we have a big church fight. A big schism breaks out and a revolt amongst uh, whoever and whatever else goes on. See, and you have a, a, a church fight, a schism right on the heels of uh, a whole body of teaching centering on unity. How, well, how how disconnecting would that be? How, how dysfunctional would that be? That's what we have here. A whole series on humility followed by this this urging. Hey, let's blast these people. Let's call fire down from heaven. See, I think uh, you need to go back and review some humility lessons there. Now, some other issues. I'm not going to uh, stress a whole lot of this. Let's get back to the Old Testament. We ran out of time under point A then. Commanding fire was reminiscent of Moses or Elijah. And we read the Moses examples. We have not read the Elijah examples. And I want to do those here today. But let's not... uh, Yes, these miracles are reminiscent of Moses. And let's not... Uh, immediately say, you know what, calling down fire means that they have a humility problem. Okay, I think it's true in the case of James and John, but remember Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Scripture tells us that he was the most humble man on the face of the planet, and yet he did do these miracles where he called down fire, he called down plagues, and so forth. So we want to check our motivation. What is the motivation for calling down the, the miracles? In Moses' case, it was humble obedience to what God was doing in delivering the Jewish people out of bondage. See, in James and John's case, though, it's not humble obedience to the will of God in terms of doing anything in the will of God, delivering the Jewish people or serving Jesus or anything they were supposed to do in a spiritual work assignment. They wanted to call down fire not to humbly obey God the Father, but to show those Samaritans just who they were messing with, right? Well, who do they think they are? See, if you respond in pride that way in, in one of those, well, who does he think he is kind of approaches, you need to stop, reevaluate, and rephrase that very expression. Because instead of asking who do they think they are, rephrase it and say, who do I think I am? Exactly how high opinion do I have of myself that I am so offended and I am so hurt or I am so emotional over what I'm observing them do. Okay? So instead of asking who do they think they are, just stop saying, well, wait a minute, who do I think I am? Okay? And if you can take the time to do that, I think it solves a lot of problems. And you may not have time to do it in traffic, but it's, traffic is a good place to do that. Somebody cuts you off and charges on up a ramp somewhere you're headed, and you, and you get offended. Like, well, who do they think they are? Stop and say, you know what? Wait a minute. Who do I think I am? Is, it, is that my ramp? You know, am I entitled to, to drive up that ramp at my uh, leisure or when I want to? You know, who do I think I am? Why should I not be cut off? Say, why should I even have a license? Why should I be allowed on the roads? All right. So if I can rephrase that question, who do they think they are, then maybe I'll put things into perspective. And if James and John had done this, then uh, they wouldn't have been so eager to to call down a fire. Instead of asking, you know, should we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How about asking, well, you know, should should fire come down and blast me because I'm a, I'm a prideful son of a gun, you know? No, they're not asking that question, but they really ought to. When's God's fire going to hit me if I'm so quick to, to call down brimstone and destruction on somebody else? So I think the Moses examples there in Exodus 9, Leviticus 9, um, are, are good to look at, but also to keep in mind that it was not a pride issue in Moses' case. My, Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. I think Elijah was humble. 
for the most part. He'd have moments of pride and, and pity parties and whatnot. Let's go to 1 Kings 18 and, uh, and then 2 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings 18. First Kings, or in the English it's First Kings, in the Hebrew it's Third Kings, but that's okay. <laughs> Isn't that a bizarre situation? First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, in the Hebrew it's First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kings. All right, call it what you want. We got the same thirty-nine books. All right, First Kings eighteen. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, eighteen, verses thirty-six through thirty-eight. Now that's a long episode here. With a big setup, and this is uh, there's a whole backstory to this, but this is the famous episode, the competition with the prophets of Baal, and the determination that you know what we've got to either serve one or the other. We can't keep trying to serve both. That uh, serving both is hypocritical, and we ought to do either one or the other, whichever one is real, whichever one exists. Let's do that. All right. Uh, it'd be like how dumb would it be to try to be both a Christian and a Muslim? How how would you try to serve? Uh, God, that is the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Jehovah Elohim, different names that he has. How do, how do we serve Jehovah Elohim and Allah at the same time? You can't. If one exists, serve him. If the other one does not exist, then don't waste your time serving that which doesn't exist. It'd be like worshiping the Easter Bunny. No such thing. Why, why build a religion around something that doesn't exist? And so that forms the backdrop to this in verse 21 elijah came near to all the people and said how long will you hesitate between two opinions if jehovah is elohim if jehovah the lord is god follow him but if baal follow him you know and and just lay it out there and uh but the people did not answer him a word and so he sets up a uh, competition here, and they put up two altars side by side, and and say, uh, you know, we're not going to put fire under it. We're going to we're going to expect that our God, if He exists, whoever He is, is going to uh, is going to provide for the fire. And then you know how it works. It's it's actually this chapter has some remarkable Hebrew vocabulary. It's got some neat uh, word studies. Uh, it's got some amazing sarcasm, which I love. I'm president of the National Sarcasm Society. And, uh, and, and all of the, the mocking that takes place here in verse 27, where, you know, call out with a loud voice, you know, uh, for he is a God. And then uh, or either he's occupied, it's a code word for he's in the bathroom, uh, or he's uh, on a journey or he's asleep. You need to wake him up. Okay. And so forth. I love the fact, of course, that our God is never asleep and he's never busy. We don't get a busy signal when you go in prayer and uh, anything like that. Okay, so you know how the story goes. I don't think there's anyone here that's unaware of the outcome. Baal fails to provide any fire. All right, because Baal doesn't exist. It's just a demon posing as a, as a God. And, and uh, God doesn't allow for the uh, false wonder here in this. And uh, even though they cut themselves and they pour out a blood sacrifice of their own blood and everything else, there's no fire coming from the satanic forces. And then Elijah says, okay, I'm going to do what you couldn't. And beyond that, we're going to drench this thing with water. And uh, so he even went a step beyond what he expected them to do and soaked it with water and filled the moat and everything else. And fire came anyway. And that's how this comes about. So verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, so he gave them all day from the morning sacrifice all day long until the evening sacrifice. And they couldn't get so much as a, as a match lit. Okay. So the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, O Jehovah, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Notice, you have turned their heart back again. The purpose for the miracle is not just to show off what God can do. The purpose for the miracle is to produce the repentance among the nation of Israel, that the worship of Yahweh would be restored and that Israel as a nation would... Uh, 
would uh, reject Baal and see the competitions against the priests and the prophets of Baal. But the real audience, the real target is to win the hearts and minds of the people to turn them back to Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. So then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. See, that's that's quite a fire. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. If it not only did it take the offering, but the wood, the stones, the water, all of that consumed in the heat. When all the people saw it, notice, not the prophets of Baal, not this satanic priesthood, but the people, the spectators. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so then uh, Elijah says, sees the prophets of Baal, do not want them to escape, sees them and brings them, puts them to death. We saw the pictures last night of the brook Kishon where, uh, where this took place. So, yes, this is a, a miracle. This is the calling forth of fire from heaven. Interestingly enough, though, did the fire from heaven destroy these prophets of Baal? No, the fire from heaven consumed the offering, consumed the sacrifice, consumed the altar. The prophets of Baal were actually murdered, executed as false prophets. And that was a statement of obedience to the, to the law. The law commanded for false prophets to be executed. These false prophets were executed not as, a, uh, as, as divine wrath out of heaven. They were executed in obedience to God's law. Capital punishment to a false prophet. See... Uh, but obviously, this little uh, hurt feeling and, and pride issue in Samaria for James and John had nothing to do with glorifying God the Father or um, bringing an end to a satanic Baal-worshipping type religion or anything of the sort. Quite a difference. All right. Then we get to Second Kings. Second Kings. Chapter 1. Second Kings. There's even question whether the book division itself belongs there. I, I mentioned First Kings, Second Kings, Third Kings, Fourth Kings. That's actually the Septuagint title. And uh, you know, if these were originally single unit books in the Hebrew, then um, the splitting them in half was done for publication purposes in the Greek translations on the scrolls as they were in use in Alexandria, uh, not. So much. It's kind of like Tolkien when he first wrote The Lord of the Rings intended it to be a single work. But it was the publishers that said, no, it's way too long. Let's break it up into three volumes. And so it was a publisher in London that turned Tolkien's work into a trilogy when he originally designed it as a six book, single volume edition. Amen. Not that that has anything to do with our Bible study, but it does illustrate that publisher considerations can have a tremendous influence centuries later. The division between First and Second Kings is a publisher consideration. Even the term Textus Receptus was a publisher blurb to Stephanus's third edition. Just publishers were trying to promote it and promoted it and put it in their in their preface. See, and now we're stuck with Textus Receptus as if somehow the Lord God spoke and said, "Here is your Textus Receptus." All right, Second Kings chapter one. Ah, another fun chapter. I love this one. Um. Verses 9 through 16. Elijah was a hard guy to catch. And, and he evidently, I think he had a, a, a teleportation type transportation mechanism that every time they thought they had him cornered, he just disappeared and popped up somewhere else. And I think it's probably kind of like Philip in Acts chapter 8. And it's just he'd, he'd pop away from one place and pop up somewhere else kind of thing. And um, the king's a little bit, you know, it's hard to arrest somebody like that. You know, if you have an arrest warrant for somebody who can teleport, that is just rough on the police officers trying to serve the arrest warrant. And so, um, anyway, it's reported that they met this guy and they said, well, what kind of guy is he? And uh, they said, well, you know, he, uh, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And, well, that can only be one person. 
you know, there's nobody else in Israel that uh, dresses like this or looks like this. It's Elijah the Tishbite. So the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him and behold, he was sitting on top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. The arresting officer says, I have a warrant for your arrest. And Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So, you know, beyond the teleportation that takes place, here's, uh, or the, the speedy running. That was another thing. He could outrun chariots all the way from one end of Israel to the other in uh, a, a speedy uh, running type of thing. Anyway, this uh, he's, he's tired of running. He's not going to run. He's just going to sit on his mountain, and anybody that comes to arrest him is going to get blasted with fire. So, uh, verse 11, So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Now, it's important to note that these are all Jews, a Jewish king, Jewish captain, Jewish soldiers, but they're obeying a, 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 a not a pagan king, a Jewish king under apostasy, a, a Jewish king uh, worshiping idols, and, and they're not serving the Lord, trying to arrest one of the Lord's prophets. Uh, you know, like we have again in the book of Acts, if, if you are given a, an order, do you have to, then you have to make a choice. Are you going to obey Caesar or are you going to obey God? If the, if the order that government gives you violates God's commands, well, then which is the higher authority? What are you going to do? And are you willing to uh, disobey civil authority and face civil consequences in order to remain obedient to God and his authority and his will for your life? Or... Are you going to compromise your spiritual beliefs, obey the civil authorities, and then face the divine consequences for defying God's will for your life? You have to make that choice. And both of these captains here, the first two of the three captains, the first two captains, they chose poorly. They chose to serve and obey their king. See, like, uh, you know, was the official viewpoint at Nuremberg, the American forces said, you know, well, we're not going to accept the, the excuse at your trial that, oh, well, you were just obeying orders. Say, you're obeying satanic evil orders. And, uh, and we didn't accept that as an excuse among the Nazis, among the, the concentration camp uh, soldiers and operators and so forth. You can't just use the, oh, well, I was just following orders excuse if you're committing uh, war crimes or atrocities against uh, humanity. In any event, that's a geopolitical thing, but in, in God's viewpoint, are you going to obey man or are you going to obey God? And so, uh, again, verse 11, this is the second captain now. He said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And it's this phrase with an identical construction that a prophet would say when he would stand and say, thus saith the Lord. Can you imagine? And here's the arresting officer saying, thus saith the king. That's blasphemous. It's, it's willfully defiant against Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. And so Elijah replied, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent a captain of a third fifty with his fifty. Now this man is a military officer with doctrine. And I just rejoice when I hear about military officers that are believers under doctrinal teaching. What a blessing they are in the nation. And the third captain of 50 went up. And notice he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah. He doesn't just stand there arrogantly and say, thus saith the king. All right. Now he is under the king's authority, but he is also under Jehovah's authority. And Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. And so he bows on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours, of your servants of yours, not the king's guards, but servants of yours, be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Now it's interesting. He, he did not tell. He did not tell Elijah what to do. 
All he did was present himself in obedience to the prophet, and he is submitting to whatever the prophet determines. If the prophet's going to kill him too, well, then so be it. But if the prophet's going to spare his life, so be it. Whatever the prophet's going to do, whatever Elijah's going to do. Let my life be precious in your sight. So the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. If the other two captains would have done something similar, then then they they wouldn't have gotten, uh, you know, blasted as far as that goes. All right. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord. And this is now to the king. This is now turning it around. Instead of sending these captains to say, Thus saith the king. Now the prophet shows up and says, All right, king. Thus says Jehovah. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub. Remember, Arnold's talking about Beelzebub. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons only by the power of Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. The God of Ekron, he's one of the Philistine gods. Ekron was one of the five Philistine cities. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. Anyway, that's the conclusion to the episode there. So, commanding fire was reminiscent of Moses or Elijah. Remember, it was Moses and Elijah that the disciples observed up on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were the three disciples who were permitted to go up on that mount and to observe a preview of the theocratic kingdom. So this reflected the disciples' continued preoccupation with their own definition of greatness. Their own definition of greatness. In other words, what runs through their minds? Why was it Moses and Elijah that got to meet the transfigured Jesus on that mount? Why was David not on that mount? Why was Abraham not on that mount? Why was uh, Daniel not on that mount? Why was Job not on that mount? Well, he wasn't a Jew, but why, uh, you know, why Moses? Why Elijah? What did they have? What did they have in common? What was it that set them apart? What was it that, how did they rate? See, and the disciples figured, hey, if we can figure that out, then we can rate the same way. Figure out, how did Moses and Elijah rate that episode? How do we rate something like that? Okay, let's start blasting people. Let's start plagues. Let's start fire. Let's start, uh, you know, being the tools of God's wrath everywhere we go. I find it interesting. All right. The remainder of this. Uh, Point B. Significant manuscripts add the name Elijah, even as Elijah also did, to verse 54. Significant manuscripts add, even as Elijah did, to verse 54. So now, depending on what translation you have in front of you, whatever English text you're looking at, let me get back to Luke 9 here in my own Bible. Significant manuscripts add, in the Greek, it reads, Hos kai Elias epoiesen. An English translation of that would be, even as Elijah did. In verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven as, even as Elijah did and consume them? All right. Now, in the New American Standard, the NESB, that variant is not even reflected. In fact, I don't have a footnote, I don't have a parenthesis, a bracket, anything in uh, this current uh, edition. All right. (coughs) New American Standard Bible follows the Nestle Alon 27th edition text. And the NA27 text in this verse follows uh, two significant early papyrus, uh, papyri, uh, papyri, papyrus singular, papyrus 45 and papyrus 75, as well as the uh, uncial manuscripts of Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Leningrad, uh, I think L is called Leningradensis, the ones that you see here. You can copy it down better than I can recite them. 
That's Sinaiticus. Capital B is Vaticanus. Capital L, I think, stands for Leningrad, Leningradensis, named after Leningrad. Capital letter Xi. And then 579 and 700 and 1241 and a few others. Also, the Latin translations, the pre-Vulgate Latin translations, the early Syriac translations, as well as the, um, the Coptic translations, when the Bible was translated into the Coptic languages, both the Sahidic and the Boharic branches of the Coptic language. You have S-A for Sahidic and B-O for Boharic. Part of what we do, and we're in the midst of a text criticism module right now for our third year Greek students, and part of what you do is you evaluate a manuscript and try to determine what the original, you know, when Luke first sat down and put quill to, to parchment, what did the autograph of Luke actually read? And we reconstruct the autograph of Luke, the original text of Luke, based upon the different variants that are testified to today. So, the, uh, the Nestle critical text, though, omits the words, even as Elijah did. Those words aren't found in the manuscripts you see listed there. Papyri 45, Papyri 75, as well as these, uh, these great uncials, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Those are uh, some of the earliest Alexandrian uncials. Now, the manuscripts that do contain the words, even as Elijah did, all right, Hos is as, Kai even, Elias is the Greek of Elijah, and Epoiason, the aorist of, uh, of Poieo, even as Elijah did, it's a pretty, it's a pretty substantial list of, of manuscripts in its own right. It includes Codex Alexandrinus, which is another one of the early Alexandrian uncials like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, it also includes a Frame Rescriptus. It includes um, Washingtonius. This uh, capital W. This is the great. Uh, this is a uh, Greek manuscript that is actually in the possession of the United States government. See, I don't know that the ACLU would be too happy about the United States government being in possession of of uh, you know scripture, <laughs> as far as that goes. But it is uh, under the custodianship of the Smithsonian Institute, and uh, it's called Codex Washingtonius. Um, anyway, it's an interesting manuscript. Uh, some of these other ones, these, Family 1 and Family 13 of the cursive minuscules are very important witnesses, as well as Manuscript 33. What's Manuscript 33 called? Queen of the Cursives. That's right, Queen of the Cursives. It is a Beautiful manuscript. Not one of the earlier ones by any stretch, 10th century. Late, however, such remarkable text clarity and, uh, and uh, readability that it's, uh, it's a great witness when other manuscripts are kind of smudged or blurry or hard to read. The uh, Masoretic text tradition holds to this as well as the Italian translations. So the, the Latin translations left it out uh, but the Italian translations included the words, even as Elijah did. And uh, later editions of the Syriac and later editions of the Boharic included the terms as well. All right. Part of the homework you do when you determine the uh, original reading of the text. Now, even if the words aren't in there, the words, even as Elijah also did, let us call down a fire from heaven and destroy them. Even as Elijah also did. Okay. If those words are missing, does it affect the meaning of the passage? No. Because even without the words being in there, Moses and Elijah are still brought to our thinking anyway, just by virtue of the miracle they're talking about, by virtue of the event itself. See? And that's why, evidently, a scribe in an early century, second or third century context, uh, context inserted those words in there, uh, trying to help the explanation a little bit by inserting some explanatory words. All right. Point C. Jesus rebuked them for their suggestion. Jesus rebuked them for their suggestion. By the way, my personal belief is I think that the words ought to be in the text. I think when, when Luke penned 
the manuscript, it contained the words, Hos Kai Elias Epoyesen, even as Elijah also did. All right? But whether he did or he didn't, it does not affect the sense of the passage. Point C, Luke rebuked them for their suggestion, uh, not Luke, Jesus rebuked them for their suggestion. He turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. I'm going to say a little bit about this expression, turned and rebuked. Because in some ways this reflects a, a rather Hebrew idiom. And yet I stop to remember that Luke was not Hebrew. Luke was Gentile. Luke's writings do not contain nearly the Hebraisms that you find in Matthew and in, and in John, for example. The, the Old Testament is full of these expressions, full of what you and I would think of as redundant expressions. Like, uh, Abraham arose and departed. You see it everywhere. So-and-so arose and departed. Now, if you think about it, isn't that kind of useless? Can we get rid of the words arose and? Can we just say Abraham departed? Yeah. I mean, we, we just kind of assume that, you know what, if he departed, he's, he's not still sitting down somewhere. Okay? So he arose and departed. To us, it's redundant and repetitive. We don't like it. Okay? Redundant and repetitive. You got that? Okay. He arose and departed. But that's very common in Hebrew. Also, uh, how about this one? He answered and said. Right? About 4,000 times do you see that in the Bible. And he answered and said unto them. Well, wait a minute. You could get rid of the words answered and and just say Jesus said or Jesus answered. You can use either one. You don't have to use them both. Okay. Now, what we're describing there is something that's very much uh, a vivid feature of the Hebrew language. And so it comes across in many New Testament authors that are writing in Greek, but they are writing from a Jewish background. Luke is not writing from a Jewish background. And so when I, I consider this phrase, he turned and rebuked them, I think there's a little bit more significance to that than if a Jewish person had written it. All right, and I really think that the turning demonstrates something substantial because remember, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. His face was set on Jerusalem. And his focus was to go to Jerusalem, and yet now he has to actually stop and turn just for a brief moment. And instead of being focused on Jerusalem, he has to get refocused now on these knuckleheads. James and John, and he has to rebuke them. I think there's more significance to turn and rebuke them coming from a Gentile author, more so than coming from a Jewish author. But he turned and rebuked them. The rebuke, of course, is what uh, God is pleased to do for each one of us through the Word of God. God's Word is profitable for rebuke. That's a great feature of God's Word. It has the, the intrinsic value of a rebuke everywhere it goes. A human being that's focused on self will find the Word of God rebukes him. And we see that here. All right, so he turned and rebuked them. Now, for a lot of folks, that's where the verse ends. He turned and rebuked them. Then you got a bracket and then you would skip on down to the last part of verse 56, and they went on to another village. So quite simply, the shortest manuscripts read, he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Okay, that's the shortest manuscript versions. There are, however, a number of manuscripts that contain some explanation as to what the rebuke actually was. And so I give that to you in the subpoints here. Subpoint one. The content of Jesus' rebuke. The content actually has less evidence than the text criticism question we just looked at in terms of the, the name of Elijah. All right. The content of Jesus' rebuke has somewhat less manuscript evidence than verse 54. There is much more evidence for the inclusion of 
uh, Elijah's name in verse 54 compared to these verses. In fact, it's, it's not good. The manuscript evidence for, for these words where he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Um, that's sketchy. And there's not as much evidence on that. The manuscripts that contain it are these. And you'll note, by starting with Ephraim Rescriptus here, which is a hard manuscript to read anyway, uh, meaning we do not have Sinaiticus, we do not have Alexandrinus, we do not have Vaticanus. There's no Aleph, there's no A, there's no B. There's no Papyrus. Okay? Um, let me back up just a minute here. There's no papyrus of any kind that contains these words. There's no Sinaiticus. There's no Alexandrinus. There's no Vaticanus. I mean, right off the bat, even if you learn nothing else, you want to learn what those manuscripts are, at the very least. And then you can learn about, um, you know, 33, and you can learn about Family 1 and 13, and some of these other ones, Washingtonius, and some of these other ones. But the biggest ones to, to focus on are because they're the earliest, the papyri. They are earlier than any of these uncials we're talking about. And then the, uh, the great uncial codexes of uh, Aleph, A, and B. All right. So the content doesn't show up in any of those. It shows up in D, K, Gamma, Theta, it starts to show up in some of the minuscules, notably Family 1 and Family 13, but does not show up in 33, Queen of the Curses. Does not show up in any of the uh, papyri or the, the early uncials. As you point out, Ephraim Rescriptus, capital letter D there, is the first one. And that's a hard manuscript to read. This, this is a fun, interesting one. This one... Um, was actually found almost accidentally. It was discovered by Tischendorf in the 1800s, uh, Constantine von Tischendorf, and they were uh, sermons that one of the church fathers had written on. And what Tischendorf realized is that this church father, Ephraimi, okay, or Ephraim, in the, to give him his Hebrew name, he actually had erased some Greek New Testaments to get paper to write his sermons on. <laughs> and so Tischendorf said, you know what? He developed a chemical process by which he could bring out what the original Greek New Testament said underneath what Ephraim's sermon was all about. Okay? And, and Tischendorf decided, you know what? The Greek New Testament is more important than whatever sermon Ephraim came up with. <laughs> all right? And so it's called a palimpsest meaning it's a uh, manuscript that's been written over again uh, from the Greek palim again. But anyway, that's so, so sometimes those manuscripts are, are valuable because of their early date, but they are sometimes difficult to read because you're trying to, uh, uh, trying to read what's underneath some other writing there. So there's not very strong evidence. And even also I should point out, we've got a little bit of time left, uh, I should also point out, that when they do occur, for the manuscripts that do have the, uh, the phrase here, let me just pull up the uh, thing here. That may not make a whole lot of sense to you. The manuscripts that do have these words, they have them in about six or eight different versions, six or eight different word orders, six or eight different words to include. There's just a real jumble of, uh, of how, how they read and how they appear. And uh, so we give you the list of D and F1 and F13 and K and Gamma and some of these other ones, but they are not in agreement with each other. They have huge differences amongst themselves. All right. And that becomes a testimony in text criticism as well. When the variants themselves have variants, they're even shakier than the, the base text you're starting with. All right, enough on that.
Whether or not the words are legitimate, I don't think they are. Okay? But if they are and if they aren't, it does not affect the sense of the passage in any way. Whether or not the words are legitimate in this passage, there was clearly some spirit that prompted the idea. Some spirit prompted the idea. I underline those words. If you don't want to write out the whole long wordy version, just write out the underlying words there. Whether or not the words are legitimate in this passage, there was clearly some spirit that prompted the idea of fire from heaven. And it obviously wasn't God the Holy Spirit. All right. I don't think the words are legitimate at all. Where he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's, uh, that's a harmony from an el- another passage elsewhere in Luke. But anyway, clearly there was some spirit that prompted the idea. Where did the idea come from? You know, do you, when you're walking down the street, does the idea ever come to you? Hey, I'd like to call down fire to blast those people. Okay, well, maybe it does. <laughs> Let me be careful here. If it does, why does it? What prompts that idea? Okay. Now, some ideas can come from your own wicked heart. What does it say in Matthew 12? What does it say in Matthew 12:34? Matthew 12:34. Have you noticed when Arnold gives you a scripture citation, he immediately repeats it? Yeah. All right, their own wicked hearts, Matthew 12:34. Matthew 12:34. I'm going to start telling you rabbi jokes too every night. (laughs) Their own wicked hearts, Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if somebody says, hey, let's call down fire and blast these people to smithereens, there is a very real possibility that what has just been verbally expressed has been a reflection of a tremendous amount of violence and evil and hatred that's, that's ingrained within their heart. Because where else does that statement come from? Well, there's a second possibility. It might be a whispered suggestion. It might be a whispered suggestion that put it within the heart, implanted it within the heart, Remember, words have power. And part of the power that a word has is that it is implantable. I don't know if that's a word or not, but if it's not, I'm going to make it up. Implantable. There are things that you can plant. For instance, seeds. You plant seeds, right? Seeds are plantable. Meaning, if you plant them, that's what they're designed for. And theoretically, you plant them in soil and they're going to come up and produce a a plant of some sort. That's what they do, okay? This, uh, these chairs are not plantable. You can bury them, but you can't plant them. You can dig a hole, put them underground, cover them with dirt. They will never sprout a, uh, a chair tree of any kind, okay? But seeds are plantable. Other things are buryable, right? Words, and right now I'm implanting an image in your mind because... For the next week, it's going to bother you, the idea of digging a hole in the ground and putting a chair and covering it with dirt. All right? No one would ever bury a chair, one of these chairs, in their backyard and expect that a chair tree is going to come out. So it's not plantable, it's buryable. Words, no matter how much we would like to bury some words, (laughs) I'm sure we've all said words that we would love to just go out and bury somewhere and never dig them up again, right? Right? Words are plantable. Receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. The word of God is plantable. Words themselves are plantable. That they grow, they nurture, or if they're wicked words, they fester and rot. They can fester and rot. Words, hurtful words, spoken in anger, spoken in carnality, decades ago, can still hurt today. Why? 
Because words are plantable. We are beings of, of verbal communication. That's part of being in the image of God. God is a communicator. God's Son is the Logos. He's the Word. Words are powerful. They're part of our nature as, as God's creation in the realm of humanity. And so whispered suggestions, if the adversary whispers into your ears, into your spiritual ears, if the adversary whispers those things and you listen to them, they're going to have a power. That's why you should not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We have John 13. We also have 1 Chronicles 21. Uh, that's, there's the big example. Let's grab that one first. First Chronicles 21. That's not on the board. First Chronicles 21.1. Get past your two Samuels, your two Kings, and uh, get to the end of your First Chronicles. First Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And when you read the parallel account in Samuel, it seems like it was David's idea. David wanted to do this. We harmonize the two passages and realize they don't contradict. They're both true. David did want to number Israel, but that motivation came as a response to the voice he listened to. He moved David to number Israel. Understand the influence that whispered suggestions can have. All right, now back to John. John 13. And you don't have to be fully possessed to be whispered to. In fact, as believers, you and I cannot be demon-possessed. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and we cannot be possessed because the, uh, the, the robber cannot come into the home and bind the strong man, as it were. We understand that. And so in John 13, 27, we actually have the possession. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Judas Iscariot becomes demon-possessed by Satan himself personally. Most demonization is not Satan personally, but this one is. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. He wasn't speaking to Judas there. He was speaking to Satan. But it doesn't take full possession to listen to a whispered voice. Look up to verse 2. During supper, the devil, notice, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. He already placed within Judas's heart the suggestion. So, this idea, I don't think the words are legitimate. I don't think verse 55 or verse 56a belong in the original manuscripts. But whether they do or not, they don't, clearly there was some spirit that prompted the idea. Something made these guys think, hey, let's blast these guys. Was it their own wicked hearts? Or was it a whispered suggestion? All right, uh, we are out of time. I wanted to do a study on determined. Uh, we can do that. We'll move on to episode 56 and uh, see. It'll go well with our study on determined. We'll use the first part of next week to look at determined and the idea there because um, it's going to go well with the content of episode 56. That's the cost of discipleship. That if you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. And that coincides with the idea of determined. What are you determined to accomplish in your obedience to God's plan for your life? So we'll have that coming up. And it'll work out well, too, because it'll be a good follow-up to Sunday evening in our pastor ministry workshop where we discuss considerations, convictions, and determinations. How do I know my gift and my ministry? What is it I must be doing to be about my father's business? So uh, many of these things are going to dovetail just beautifully as we, uh, as we proceed forward. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for our class this morning. And Father, for the, uh, the class this evening, we're eager to um, 
have our sixth and final uh, teaching session here. We're thankful that you blessed us, Father, uh, for a ministry of, of our humble uh, size, our small little group of folks here to to have a world caliber scholar such as Arnold Fruchtenbaum is, is an amazing blessing, Father. And I just want to thank you for making that possible, for providing that. And, uh, Father, counting, uh, counting this opportunity as a real, a real highlight and a real uh, blessing beyond anything that we could ask or think. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.